This podcast is entitled Today, Maybe Forever. And George, I don't know if you um, have ever thought about those words together, but in between today, in between forever, there are lots of choices, lots of, of maybes. Um, but today is is a finite thing. Absolutely. But it's always moving, right? Sure. Um, forever is not very finite, but it's always pretty definite. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, and so... Uh, talking about those things in between those choices those decisions and so um we've had lots of art conversations um and i think that i always walk away from those conversations feeling like man like i just want to hear more about george in, in this perspective because I, I feel like what what you're doing um is i won't say revolutionary but i feel like it's it's important and it's and it's it's needed so gotcha. you as an artist, uh, you as an art teacher, mm-hmm. you as an arts administrator, you as a person in the world, I feel like what you're doing is, uh, is just, you know, it's, it's, it's meaningful in a lot of different ways and you touch a lot, of, a lot of different people. So as an artist, as an artist, um, what is your, what is your vision for your for your career? Mm, that's a good question. Um, you know, artist is his or her own worst critic. And when I think about my career, it's definitely, um, you know, I've seen that. Basically, uh, throughout my 12, 13 years of teaching, I've realized that I can only fit in as much time as I have throughout the day. Um, uh, teaching from you know eight to four uh, to actually fit in my artwork. But um, I basically want to get to a point where I don't feel like teaching is a sacrifice anymore. Um, uh, teaching is one of those things, you, you know, you don't get paid for the amount of time you put in. <laughs> but I feel like uh, some of my mentors throughout the years have explained to me that you need multiple strands of revenue, you know, kind of coming in at the same time. And I think about uh, my year studying at Howard, um, I majored in graphic design, and I knew I was gonna be this like freelance graphic designer or working at some firm or something. And um, uh, when I got out in 2001, that just wasn't happening. Um, education was a great fallback, and I got a lot of educators in my family. My mom is uh, uh, was a teacher, assistant principal, head principal, and then actually a, a, a district administrator. and when I saw what education could do, um, I realized that I could add that in to my artistry. So um, when you talk about forever, today, uh, first thing I really think about though is a student that I had that um, he did a small mural at the school. Uh, He was in our nonprofit program, uh, UAE Youth Artist Program, and uh, he passed away, like, you know, during the summer. Um, uh, this was a couple of years ago, but when I think about that, that mural that he did is still there, you know, like that thing that he created, more students at my school, Westlake High School, will continue to see that. And I mean, it's still up, you know, I think it's going to be up for years to come. Um, but I don't necessarily think of my artwork that way. Uh, I think that every day I'm trying to make the next best piece. And I know that in the past I haven't uh, 
haven't done that. You know, the Mona Lisa could have been better. Well, ultimately, I feel like my next piece, um, it'll be my best piece. And as you said, it could be my last piece. You teach at the school where I went, so I'm, I'm always happy to, to know what's happening over at Westlake. And I think that's um, – you are – in some ways, my conduit into what's still happening over there because I'm not there, you know, I'm not there all, all the time. And so <clears throat> I always see, you know, whatever you're posting on Instagram or whatever you're talking about the kids. And I just like to know that you're there impacting them. Um, and I don't remember having art, you know, as a large part of my life growing up mm-hmm. when I was at Westlake. So to, to know an artist who's also an art teacher who was also an art teacher at my high school. I'm like, yeah, I got, I got to always, you know, make sure I'm, I'm checking in to see what, 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 what George is doing because like that's my community. And, and when you talk about the the mural that's still up, um, you know, we don't often, we always think that we have more time than we have, right? You know, yeah. we always think we have more years, you know, a few more decades, hopefully, if we're blessed in that, in that way. But to be able to leave something. Um, behind, even unintentionally, you know, leave something behind, um, I think is, is very important. So even this conversation, you know, yeah. will hopefully probably outlast us if it's, you know, kept in a digital format. Absolutely. Um, but why don't you look at your work as having that same lasting, you know, property? Um, I think it's just because I, uh, I've been drawing since I was, you know, old enough to hold something to draw with, right? And I think a lot of uh, artists can say that, but um, I was always practical about it. Like, I mean, I remember selling my first piece of artwork for a dollar uh, at church. <laughs> I did this uh, drawing of Jesus, actually, and the person beside me during service, you know, while I'm drawing, of course, I uh, should have been listening. Um, but they uh, asked me if they could buy it, and my mom said it was okay. And um, I should have seen the value in it at that point, but I've never thought of my artwork as something that was um collectible um i never thought it was going to be uh uh valued by uh people like you know i just did it because i knew that's what i wanted to do right when i was younger i wanted to be an architect then i found out how much math was involved in that that didn't work out um and then graphic design kind of came up around like the you know 13 14 year old age and um I think graphic design uh, made so much sense to me. I was like, oh, okay, you're doing art for a person or a company for a certain purpose. Um, It wasn't gonna be on someone's wall, it was gonna be in someone's magazine or on someone's website. Um, And strangely enough, I actually have taken what I learned at Howard in undergrad um, throughout my career. Like when I create a piece of artwork, I mean, gosh, people talk about some something happening to their art and it being like something happening to their child. Um, yeah, I, I, I can make another one. You know, every time I make a new piece of artwork um, and my wife, uh, she actually sells my art <laughs> and manages my career. But um, anytime that she sells a piece, I don't really feel a sense of longing. Um, I feel like there's empty space on my wall in the studio and I can put a new piece in that space. And I don't undervalue it. I just simply um, um, realize that it's meant to be out there for a purpose. So, you know, now people are buying it, putting it up on their wall or or putting it in some space. It's decorating. It's it's valuable in that sense. But um, a graphic designer is kind of always looming 
in my kind of artist mind uh, back there somewhere. Yeah. And so even going back to your earlier ambitions as an architect, I really wanted to ask you about your fascination with structure, mm. because I feel like in a lot of your work, even without even knowing that, I'm like, George is always, not always, but often painting structure or creating mm. structure. So, so I think about your, your Bray series. Or even thinking about your uh, your series that relates to um, the stadiums mm-hmm. uh, uh, here in a- Atlanta, the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, the Georgia Dome, and I just feel like there's always been this sort of structural component or this you know aesthetic that has been present in your work. Mm-hmm. So um, talk about that. Well, it's funny that um, I wanted to be an architect because my wife, uh, Zoe Galvez, she also wanted to be an architect, <laughs> and um, she uh, she actually became an engineer. And um, she told me once that uh, it was too much art in the architecture and too much drawing. And, uh, you know, we, we kind of balanced each other out with that, basically. Uh, I feel like it's a, kind of where we meet with artwork, right? But uh, nonetheless, um, the thing about structures is that there's shapes and there's forms and there's color. And, and in the midst of that, I just find my space. Um, uh, I never use a ruler. Hate rulers. Can't like it. Almost throws off what I want to do because um, I understand perspective. I understand that there's a certain formula to it. But um, if I mid um, creation want to change the angle of something, and I want to create this illusion that you know something does exist where it doesn't, um, I can just do that, and I don't have to worry about where my vanishing point is or where my horizon line is. And so architecture or structure-like forms have always drawn me in because when I see them, I don't just see, you know, the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. I see this um, this skeleton that's being crafted out of the um, uh, dirt and ground and all these uh, um, structures that are attached to it and in the midst of trying to build it. And, you know, it just looks linear. You know, I actually liked it better before they put the finishing touches on it, you know. So uh, when we did that series, and I say we because, like, my wife was, like, literally with me uh, when I was doing live paintings and drawings for a lot of those. um, We would literally be out there um, at, you know, 8, 9 o'clock in the morning. Maybe there was about to be a game and a bunch of folks were tailgating. But um, that process and that experience of seeing the evolution of it and kind of documenting that, that was the fun part. And um, what I will admit is that's the obligation of the artist. We always talk about how um, artists are supposed to document what's going on. And I know with gentrification, this city, this area that we live in, this space is, you know, it's changing, it's evolving, and it's not gonna look the same from day to day. And as I'm painting these urban landscapes and drawing these urban landscapes, I'm knowing that in 10 years, I'm going to be drawing something else in that exact location Mm, or mm. 20 years, hopefully, you know. Um, So, yeah, that's what draws me to it. Yeah. Now, we're here in your home studio, uh, Galbraith headquarters, as as we've called it previously. And (laughs) one of the things anyone who, who comes here uh, can see is that you have a lot of art on the wall mm. and I feel like more than any other artist that I know as someone who who, who is an artist um, and carries themselves as such more than anyone that I know as an artist you collect more than any other artist that I can think of 
Um, and maybe this is a maybe you're more public with it, but I feel like you are also an advocate for the collection and maybe the stewardship of artwork of your mm-hmm. peers. Um, talk about that. Well, I cannot take credit for that. <laughs> um, uh, my wife, who is here, um, she will tell you that when we met, um, uh, maybe one of our, I don't know, six, seven dates um, coming to my college park house, she realized that there was nothing on the walls except for one piece from my mentor, uh, Kevin Cole. And um, I would say that for both of us, uh, he he put the bug in us. Um, uh, my wife was so excited about my work, like I said, before I even I was. Um, so when we cr- created um, our space, um, when we got married and we lived in Alpharetta, uh, she took these three pieces that I had done and she was like, okay, those are mine. And she put them up in the house. And I was like, we're not selling them? You know, like that's, that's what we do. You know, we make art, we sell it, which is why my work wasn't on my wall and I wasn't creating a lot back then. Um, you know, this is, I guess, like 2000 and maybe 12 or so. Okay. So nonetheless, um, the Alpharetta house started getting full of these pieces that she said we couldn't sell. You know, they're part of our collection. And there was maybe only like maybe four or five pieces. And, uh, when we moved to Castleberry Hill, it was a very intentional thing. Um, we said we wanted to live in this arts district. Um, we wanted to have a certain type of house. You know, we had just got married. We wanted to kind of merge those two lives, but I had no idea what her vision was for the amount of artwork we were going to uh, have in our space. And um, when we did um, finally start collecting, uh, it was unbelievable. It's been like a cycle. Um, like I uh, think that I actually got to a point where I got addicted to it and she got addicted to it and uh, we're collecting local Atlanta um, African-American artists and it's uh, a great feeling to have this much work at this point because this has only been three and a half years of collecting for real and I think the sky's the limit you know like uh, maybe years and years from now we can actually um you know, like have our collection at Spelman or something. Yeah, well, yeah. since we since you we we've already sort of uh, referenced Isohei a few different times. I think it's yes. great to just sort of slide her into the conversation, literally slide her into the conversation. Uh, she was sitting next to you, so let's go ahead and just bring her into this this dialogue. Isohei, hi. Hi. <laughs> Talk about your vision for this collecting because you are. Uh, I won't even say you're Georgia Silent Partner because I don't think you're you're, you're anything close to being silent um, <laughs> but 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 um i just i i feel like you know george mentioned the word balance and i feel like you all have you know you all work at that and keep that really really strong and at, and at the forefront so i would love for you to maybe talk about the work that's in galbert headquarters yeah i think recognizing the beauty in george's work and his ability to tell a story or evoke an emotion or to relay his feelings at the time, um, it kind of drew me into the art world in a way that I didn't know um, this passion existed before. So when we moved into the house, I remember telling him that I didn't care what furniture we had, I didn't care what else was together, I just wanted some work on the walls. And I remember when we first moved in, we had six pieces on the wall and they were 
Um, the majority of them were his pieces because we didn't have any other artwork and we had only purchased um, one piece previous to that. Um, and from there, a lot of the conversations were about what we wanted to see in the space, but we would be moved by an artist's artwork. And it was important to me that we continue to support artists and living artists and emerging artists in that way. And so we'd go to shows, we'd have Articulate, we have a lot of Articulate artists on our walls because that's where we would be introduced um, to their work. But um, the love for the art is also about making sure we're supporting the ability for them to continue to tell their stories. And we don't have a piece of artwork in our home that we don't genuinely love the artist. I know love is a strong word, but mm -hmm. there's not one person who I don't like or don't care for or sure. haven't had some kind of interaction with that there's this story that if you come over and you ask me about the artwork, I want to share it. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite pieces and probably most coveted pieces is from Kaya Ferry, um, a photographer, and it's a self-portrait. And I remember when we met her at her solo exhibit, it was the first time we had been to a City of Ink solo exhibit um, show. And we met her there and we thought she was super cool. We saw this piece and at the time we're hesitant about buying artwork, um, even before we were really in the neighborhood in Castleberry. And so it was a few months later, I approached her about purchasing the piece and she said, no, I don't, you know, I'm not selling that piece. And every time I saw her, probably <laughs> once or twice a year, I'd ask her about that piece. And she said, no, you know. And so George was like, you know, stop asking her because <laughs> at some point you might offend her by, yeah. you know. And she came over one day and she said, I have your piece. And it was a gift. I mean, she was letting go of piece. She said, I think I've held on to it long enough. And that's probably my like favorite piece um, just because it represents the beauty of the artist. But any time that we've seen something that we've appreciated, sometimes it's just kind of been this feeling. Yeah, yeah. Um, we went to Maya's first show mm -hmm. and his first solo show at Notch 8. And I remember before we went, we said these would be the two pieces we want. If he recreates um, a portrait of Basquiat or he does a self-portrait. And those, that would be the only thing we would buy if we went and we saw something. And we walked in and probably 60% of the show was sold maybe even 70% of the show was already sold when we walked in. And there was this self-portrait. And I said, George, there it is. Yeah. And George was like, I didn't even see it. But you know, you were immediately drawn to so it. was like, we gotta get that. And my mom had traveled in and she was waiting on us to pick her up. But it was so important to get what we already knew that we wanted to have. Mm. Um, but to continue to support those artists and for them to be a part of our home, like to wake up in a home like this is a bit of a dream and not something I, envision being a part of. Um, George does a great job in curating the space. I can take no credit for hanging anything or imagining where it'll be or what it looks like. Um, that's 100% George. Um, but I always joke that his wife does a really good job of spending money. <laughs> but every experience um, in purchasing a piece has been like what you mentioned. Yeah. Um, uh, we've got a story for the two Shaniqua Gay pieces we have. Um, the Fahamu Peku that we have, the um, Jamal Barber, um, Ely Mays, Ely Mays, Artemis Jenkins, Aaron Henderson, Aaron Henderson, uh, Paper Frank, Paper Frank, Chrissy every Scribbles, man. name every dropping, man. Every man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like all of those were experiences, and yeah, it's been great. I mean, you've named some really, I think, pivotal artists in Atlanta right now, and and I, I do believe that. 
the Galbraith collection will be on display somewhere, you know, because you, you've, you're, I mean, you're capturing all of this great work by these amazing artists. And I, I love the stories that, that you tell. And I have to tell a story off the air. Um, <laughs> I've known Kaya since before she had tattoos. Wow. wow. Yeah. Stop. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, That's a story. That is a story. <laughs> um, but it, I mean, just it just goes to just show you, um, you know, as you watch someone grow as an artist and into their into themselves as a person, and then as an artist. I mean, it's just a, a, a really beautiful thing to to have the privilege to observe. You know, um, and you, you the word love. You know, you kind of say. Oh, maybe that isn't the right word, but I think that is that is the right word. Um, I think when we talk about love for art and community and kind of what's what's the role of an artist or or what the role is of these artists, um, I would love for you to maybe even talk about love of of black art. Like like what is that love like for you all beyond just Atlanta artists, but just like what does that represent for you, both George, you as an artist. And he's so hey, as someone who is spending all of you know George's money, um, well y'all's money because you all are a unit. But um, but but you know what is that love? You know how do you articulate that love? Mm, I think uh, it's with the cycle. Um, I see the transition from student artist with my high school kids to the teacher that loves to teach them that's also doing his artwork to articulate ATL, which is our um, large fundraiser. And those being emerging artists, you know, they might be, you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and then to the collector. And there's this cycle of like artistry and the love or appreciation that goes into that artistry. The one thing that we all have in common, like every single age group of people that either have a passion for art or people that have a talent for it, and we all can kind of meet on that level. Yeah, I know? think I think for me, um, I le- I grew up with a serial entrepreneur, um, creative, eclectic business owner um, as a mom. And I worked in corporate for 12 years, engineering and finance. And I didn't feel that I was whole working in that space. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I I felt like I was gonna figure it out. Um, In figuring that out, um, I do this small business consultation, financial stuff with creative people. And I love it. Um, I love working with creatives, but this um, this appreciation that I have for small black business owners is part of this black art collection thing that we have. And so they are these individual businesses making a way, using their talents um, without having some corporate entity or someone else bearing down on what their vision and their work looks like. Um, and that represents a certain amount of freedom for me that you're not getting anywhere else. So to be able to see that beauty and that freedom um, that I longed for for several years before I was able to make that jump like it brings my heart joy and the people I work with are literally superstars so whether it's tax prep or budget planning or whatever that is like it's it's like I'm getting to work with my superstars and people who are able to use their creative spirit and their creative voice and do what's in their heart to do um, 
again, without some corporate entity pushing down on them and telling them what is necessary for them to produce. It's a freedom that I feel like we need as a people. And they are, I guess, the consummate um, kind of representation of that freedom to me. Um, and so every time we buy a piece of artwork, we are supporting a small black business entity. And it's um, in that support, it's one of the most beautiful ways that we can do it. And we don't, we didn't eat it. It doesn't go away, it's still here. And we can wake up tomorrow morning and enjoy it just the same. And so, you know, there are literally days like you, you come into your living space, or you wake up in your bedroom and you're looking at this beautiful art and what it represents um, from the perspective of freedom and voice. Um, and I couldn't think of a better way or a different way I'd want to really be able to spend my money and influence our community. Speaking of freedom uh, in a physical sense uh, or uh, exploring open spaces, you all recently hit the road, um, road tripping uh, for the purposes of art and creation and, you know, uh, exploration, I would say. Talk about your recent road trip uh, and what that was like for you. Well, it came about, um, I guess, a about a year and a half ago maybe when we started considering uh, driving up to Minneapolis to see my dad. Um, I see my dad probably like once or twice a year and it make it made sense. We were like, okay, we can just hit um, this city with some more family, Lexington. Uh, we can hit uh, Missouri and whatnot and kind of go this roundabout way, go through Chicago. And it didn't happen that year. Uh, we took a flight that year, but um, <laughs> It, it made so much sense to go on this journey because I think about, um, it's kind of a, a different story. Like I did this piece of artwork for my dad that was like a bridge. And you know, I've been working on the bridge series and it was so symbolic. And I was like, man, like, like I'm connecting with my dad through my artwork, a guy or a person that I don't see very much. And you know, we're a little distant, but the bridge was symbolic of that. Well, the trip, when we finally took it this year, was very, very symbolic. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, I remember we talked about it last year, and it didn't come to be, and we kind of talked about it again this year, but as he's been doing these urban landscapes, and he's had commissions from old high school friends, like, hey, I had this house I grew up in in Alabama. I'd love to see kind of what that looks like to you. Um, my favorite bridge in Cincinnati, like, you know, we drive across and it makes this humming sound. It's called the suspension bridge, but always, you know, it, it was the bridge that buzzed as you rode across it. So you kind of rolled down the windows a little bit so you could hear the buzz. And I have a couple of young cousins who come and visit us in the summer. And uh, Mammy said, oh, that's the humming bridge. Like he looked at it and immediately recognized mm -hmm. it. Um, it's the same architecture as the Brooklyn Bridge, but for him being from Cincinnati, he, he immediately knew what it was. Um, he's looked at Kevin's work and talked about, you know, oh, those look like ties. And he's like eight. And so for us to be able to kind of travel to these places that um, 
that we grew up in that kind of formed who we are as people. Um, and for me, Lexington, um, there's a lot of pain that's there. And so to see certain places created through George's vision and with his beauty, like it was really important and it was quite therapeutic. Um, but to go to Lexington where I grew up and then to go through Cincinnati and to end up in Missouri and then, you know, to go to Fulton, Missouri, where his mom is from. I mean, it was just, um, it was, it, it, I didn't know how great the experience could be, but we take road trips and we might go to one place and George is like, get a picture of that. And so I'm sitting there with my cell phone grabbing pictures, but this time, you know, we had the good camera and we <laughs> captured these pictures yeah. and we're making these trips and we're outlining things and we didn't get to spend time with family like we typically would have. Um, we didn't we didn't do the family kind of thing, but it was familial in that you captured these moments and you captured these places and you almost saw your city or your hometown through a fresh set of eyes that you hadn't seen before. Mm. What what do you think we aren't seeing? about some of these places. So I asked that, you know, you kind of mentioned there's a lot of pain in Lexington. You know, what what are what are folks in Atlanta or maybe even other other spaces where um, they may hear this conversation? Um, what is what is not being seen about about some of these cities that have been around for a long time, but maybe aren't always on our on our radar until until a bad thing happens? I, I think about one of our recent additions to our collection, Artemis Jenkins. And he um, he's a photographer, videographer, visual artist um, here in Atlanta. And the way that he captures the beauty of this city is, it's unreal to me. So it's something that you might drive past and not see it, and it takes someone else to capture the beauty in it. Um, in the same way, when I think about Lexington, um, somewhat segregated, um, a lot of... Um, I, I won't call it as much racial divide as economic divide, which of course has huge racial undertones, um, but in driving back through and looking at it with a fresh set of eyes and being able to release the pain and seeing the beauty through an artist's eyes, it's difficult to see that when everything is clouded with so much pain. So if there's a certain amount of despair, if there's a certain amount of poverty, if there's a certain amount of strife, um, if there's racism that you experience, if there's teachers telling you what you can't be, if they're your peers who are making fun of you, if um, there's a struggle because you don't have transportation or remembrances of being evicted from your home, those struggles are at the forefront and not necessarily the beauty of the place that you grew up in. But when you're able to go back, and again, through an artist's eyes, um, you're able to see the beauty that exists in the way that they render all of the beauty that was around you. Sometimes um, church sermon this weekend um, on Sunday was about not concentrating too heavily on what you don't have, but on what you do have, on what you've made it through. And through the beauty of George's artistry, um, I know that part of it exists because of my love for him, but I also believe there's a um, an infinite amount of talent there that also allows me to see beauty that I haven't seen before. Um, it allowed me to see what was there and what was beautiful about the space versus running away from some of the darker places that may have been a part of my childhood or my upbringing. And I think in a lot of our cities and a lot of those places, um, it's very layered, but if we're able to remove pieces of that pain um, and look at what is there and the beauty that does exist, um, whether through the eyes of an artist or just through your own fresh set of lenses, 
um, it's what I was able to see in Lexington, in Cincinnati, and I assume what you were able to see in Fulton and Columbia. Well, when we went to Cincinnati, um, we one of the locations we uh, uh, were illustrating in, we kind of did a watercolor and ink. Um, it was literally across the street from where her granny used to live, and it was this space that used to be called the Jockey Club, and now it's called Myrtles, and it's um, a regingified area, and it's, you know, totally different from what she remembers of her granny and um, her um, cousin sitting under the tree, you know, all day, and, you know, like having these um, community-like experiences. It's, it's a different space. It's a different place. And one of the things that I noticed um, kind of while we were on the trip is something I realized while we were doing the bridge series, um, you know, I think about the Edmund Pettus Bridge, one of the bridges that I painted and, you know, how much negative history is there, but now also how much positive history is there because of that, you know, with various different marches and whatnot. And then um, Sawyer Bridge in South Africa, I was painting that and I can only imagine that at some point, literally, a, a man or a woman black had been lynched off of that bridge. I'm certain of it. I mean, it's named after a major apartheid advocate. advocate. And it just, it's amazing how over a course of time, if you, if you live long enough, you know, you'll see something just totally just um, uh, change physically. But you don't really know if the ideology behind it has changed. Yeah, and I, I, I do believe that part of it is the cycle of life and what you're supposed to see and not see. So I remember the first time I drove down Woodburn Avenue and it looked so different than where I had spent my childhood summers. And my grandmother passed in 2009. And I don't know how she would have felt seeing that, being displaced, being pushed out, like what that would have felt like for her. And part of me said it wasn't a pain that she was supposed to experience. George could see it and he could revision it in a certain amount of beauty that still brings me a certain amount of longing and wishing for something that was there. Um, so I, I think it's wonderful to kind of capture, and you spoke to it earlier, 10, 20 years from now, it might be different again. But you captured that moment in time, and I feel like that's why the artistry um, is so important. Now, George, as an artist, and I think that anyone who's listening uh, can see the uh, the way in which you all, I think, approach uh, life together. But when it comes to your work, how have you created space for Isohe to be that partner for you in your work? More importantly, how has she created space? <laughs> um, I remember a time, uh, one... Uh, when I wasn't creating. Um, I remember after graduate school and um, undergrad, I was just exhausted. Um, you know, I was working all the time. Uh, it was when I first started teaching and um, even during the summers I work, you know, just try to balance out that salary. But um, once we started dating, I kind of started feeling my muse come back and, you know, mm -hmm. I just thought it was my muse. And <laughs> um, then uh, when we got married, I moved to Alpharetta. Um, I had my own kind of guest room and that was my studio space because it's very important for artists to have their own space to create in. And uh, she would come in and check on me and then slowly she would come in and just hang out. And then before I knew it, um, a space that I once thought was intimate 
with me, like literally, like I had to be there alone. I had to be in my chi and my mode. It encompassed her and she became a part of it. And then I looked up one day and I couldn't create without her around. And it blew my mind. Like, uh, uh, but now I think we're through, through another evolution where uh, she's out of town and I'm creating in our studio space or whatever. Um, I feel like I just sense her presence because I know she'd rather be right there with me while I'm creating. And um, sometimes when I'm creating with the students, I think about that as well. It's a, it's a very interesting thing, but um, yeah, we almost like, I always say we because we create work together. Yeah, I run ideas by her all the time. And um, she makes sure that I'm, you know, discussing it properly for artist talks and things of that nature. So, yeah, that's kind of kind of interesting. Isohe. It, it blows my mind, and I appreciate him allowing me to be a part of the space. I know that it doesn't have to be that way. Um, but I, I do remember, like, checking in, like, you all right? You good? you need anything <laughs> um and it going from that to me just kind of sitting in there and trying to be real quiet like if I sit here and I'm real quiet maybe he won't notice me and he you know um and from there it went into hey what do you think about this and now it's a point where it's like hey George what do you think about this or I think you should do this or have you thought about this or their ideas um and it feels great to be a part of the process I mean there's so much that I've learned in the past I guess five, six years. Um, we got married in 2011, and he started creating in our house in 2012. And, and I can remember that transition, but I thought there was so much talent and so much that was there that wasn't being put out. And it, it seemed like a shame, like it seemed like a travesty, like you have this talent and this voice that's not being shared with everybody. Like I want everybody to see it. I want everybody to experience it, like let's go. And it wasn't something that I spoke to a lot, but when it started to build inside of him and it was something that he wanted to let out and, you know, he wanted to share, um, it was probably like one of the best moments because I saw this transition. Um, I, I, I enjoy our time together. I appreciate what he's allowed me to be a part of, but who thinks that after 35 years of life, you're gonna get this opportunity to learn something brand new and so between the kids and working with the kids, and he spoke to one of his students who suddenly passed away a few, I mean, it was last year and I cried and I cried some more, but I thank God that I had the experience to even know that child because in my line of work and whatever I've been doing before, I wouldn't have been a part of that and I wouldn't have necessarily had that connection um, with such a beautiful soul. Um, the APR exam scores came through the other day and we had, a couple of fives. Actually, I think we had three fives and three fours. And to be able to share in that level of excitement from kids who have gone through the program. And one kid posted, he had two fives on two different portfolios. And to look forward to what he shares with the world, like I wouldn't have had that without George. We wouldn't have had that without the program. Like it's, I can't speak to how wonderful that makes me feel that he's allowed me to be a part of his artistry. And his artistry doesn't stop with what you see on the wall. It goes so far beyond that. And the kids love him and they should. And what he's able to bring out of them is beautiful and what he's able to do. Um, and so there's so much that goes on um, that he's simply allowed me to be a part of that. 
I have the desire to continue to make him proud and work really hard so that he doesn't replace me, right? Like, <laughs> I like my job. I want to keep my job. I want to keep my role. Um, and so that has been, um, like I said, I've learned so much. And to be able to, again, learn something new at 35 years old, 40 years old, like that's not something I ever thought I would have. And there's been this change and redirection that, yeah, I can't thank him enough for. Getting emotional over here. Yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah, it's so this is beautiful. But it's real. Um, and I, I do want to talk about the program, but I do want to ask you one last question of sort of about how you all work. And, you know, you talk about the life of an artist. So there, there is no, you know, on off, you know, um, sort of switch for you. How do you all, at least at least in how you all approach life, how do you balance out those times when you are being creative, like actively creative in times when you're not in times when like just ma managing yourselves in your roles in the work and in life. How do you all like work out, work out that, that, that balance? I think, um, um, you know, that goes back to Kevin. Um, so Kevin Cole, uh, is this very, very well-known successful artist and he just retired this year, but he was, able to be a high school teacher or in actually middle school when he first started for 30 years but was able to do these large commissions for coca-cola um, um you know like for michael jordan to purchase his work i mean like he didn't have to be a teacher right and he did not seemingly sleep like this man would like um wake up in the morning after being up until two, three o'clock in the morning creating artwork, go to school, teach, like all day. <laughs> and then he would go back to the studio and start painting or creating again. And I think through seeing him do that, both of us, he allowed us kind of into his space. We realized that our creating could happen in the midst of our life. And there is so much um, that happens in terms of like our understanding of art and what we're planning, like on our couch with a glass of wine, you know? And it, it's just this like ongoing kind of cycle that we've created that kind of allows us to do that. Yeah, and I mean, somewhat cliche, but when you're doing what, you're, what you love, it never feels like work. And so we're constantly working and our parents are the ones who speak to it the most, like, rest, take some time, you know? Um, but we love it, and so it, it doesn't feel like work. I mean, it feels like we're living, and it feels like we're living our best lives. Like, it's not, um, there's no compromise in, you know, turning the creativity off. There's no need for turning it off because it happens and it feels good. Um, there is something that George has awakened in me when it comes to, I love numbers, you know, number nerd, what have you, you think that's all left brain stuff, but I've recognized even more and more, even after leaving the field of engineering, how much creativity is associated with that in your thought process and how you solve problems and how you provide your clients the best financial solution and how you provide them the best possible income tax return or whatever that looks like, and it all goes together. And I think our minds are constantly spinning and even our most enjoyable times might be a day art party. It might be, 
hey, we're going to Kevin's studio today. Like it, mm-hmm. and it's um, it's all within that vein of doing what we love. And so there has not been a whole lot of need to separate. Now I will say, I didn't feel like this year we had a vacation because it didn't include a beach. And so if it doesn't <laughs> include a beach, you had a trip, right? So we had a trip, but the trip was cool. On yeah. the trip, we stayed at nice hotels and we ate good food and, and we, did we created artwork, artwork and All people day. bought artwork. And it was like, yeah. you know what? This is okay. And I had, you know, my piece in that. And, you know, there's, there's a fulfillment that makes it never feel as though there is the need for some kind of balance because the balance is already there because you're simply loving life even through your work yeah so any like younger artist that's out there that's listening figure out a way for every aspect of what you do to be arts related like if that's if that's really what you want to do like even another career you can figure out a way to kind of fit it into the realm of artistry yeah yeah now let's talk about uh, the nonprofit and as well as articulate. I don't think we really dwelled on that enough, but I do want to um, pivot and talk about the organization and and really what again. I mean, we at the, the outset I said you do a lot and you're active in this space in a in a variety of ways. Um, so talk about forming an organization, forming uh, you know creating programming for for these kids. Um, and, and what the vision was and, and, and what your mission is for that. So George, um, we talk and we talk about work. Um, and one of the things that George recognized as he was grading AP portfolios, and one of the things he recognized as he was judging portfolios for the governor's honors program and things of that sort was that there was a certain amount of deficiency in the work that was presented from kids from the south side of Atlanta. And it wasn't a deficiency of talent. That wasn't it. And we felt like it was a deficiency of breadth of perspective and depth. Um, And so we started talking. And ultimately, we thought that maybe they're just not getting these outside of the classroom experiences. And so we know there are a certain number of boxes that need to be checked inside the classroom. What happens outside the classroom? Are they attending? summer art camps, are they, are they getting to the galleries? Are they traveling above 20? I have grown friends who don't travel above 20 with driver's licenses and cars. So what happens when you have a 14, 15, 16 year old who everything they experience art related is relegated to the classroom and even the internet, but they're not real life tactical touch. I can reach out and make this happen experiences. Um, and so that's where the idea for UAE Youth Artist Program was born. And it's essentially about decreasing the exposure gap and allowing the children to have experiences outside of the classroom that add to their depth and breadth. So the talent is there, the talent's always been there. The teachers do an excellent job in making sure that that talent is developed, um, but it's more from a technical aspect. So when it comes to living in life and making sure the kids get to the High Museum or they get to the Spelman Art Museum or they get to Zucott Gallery or they have an exhibit at Zucott Gallery, um, or they walk the streets of Castleberry Hill and realize there are all these other avenues, or we have someone who Turner from Turner who comes and talks to them about the development of films and movies and animation and how this all happens and how this goes together. And there are light bulbs that go off, and you can see it with the kids, like you don't have to take this path of a starving artist that someone may have laid out for you, like there are other ways that you can do this. And your talent um, 
definitely speaks to that need. Um, and it's something and a role that you can fill. So I think the program, um, it, I mean, I have to give all that credit to George for recognizing a need and a void and saying, how can we fill this? And so currently it's 12 to 15 kids a year and we provide them with eight art experiences outside of the classroom. Um, we have supplies that are matched with what we purchased, and so their ability to even use high-end art supplies. We took kids to Sam Flax Art Supply Store and they had never been there. Their parents didn't know it existed. And these are some of the most talented kids on the south side of Atlanta who didn't know that we have a Sam Flax right in Midtown, right on the Marta line. You know, they don't have to go too far to experience it. So making sure that they know this and they experience it and they're able to create their artwork not from a place of deficiency, not based on boxes that need to be checked based on Georgia education standards, which you know, no opinion is being shared about the standards, but we know that there's something else that's needed to give them that voice and experience that allows them to be those that document our history and our story in the current times through their artistic voice. And because supplies cost money, <laughs> especially high-end supplies Indeed. like Prismacolor markers and Micron pens, um, uh, we have an event fundraiser called Articulate ATL. Uh, that's on July 22nd at Mason Fine Art, and it is from 7 to 11 p.m. Uh, we have about 33 artists that have done an excellent job at uh, creating a body of work throughout the year to display at the show. And people come out and um, have a good time. They have a great time, <laughs> and um, while at the same time raising funds for a really, really good thing. Um, and I, I yeah. think the the articulate has become somewhat twofold. Um, it could be a nonprofit all within mm -hmm. itself. Um, the desire to provide a venue and a platform for emerging artists in the city to showcase their work in a clean space where art is at the forefront. And I'm not um, critiquing anyone who does it differently. So I think it's great however we get it out there, right? You get the art out to the masses and you make it um, something that is accessible to the masses. And so having these emerging artists who may not have the ability to be inside of a mason immediately, but you're giving them 10, 12 feet of uninterrupted space to showcase their work. And so there are like 30 mini exhibits within this larger exhibit. And to have people purchase artwork, last year the artist sold over $20,000 worth of work. It was the most that we had ever sold. Um, and the artists keep 100% of their proceeds. And so it's, um, it's a collective kind of thing, um, their investment, their time, their artistry. And it's beautiful for us to all be able um, to consume their artwork visually, but it's also important to make sure that we support that artistry. Um, in a monetary form so that they can continue to produce and so that they're encouraged to produce and motivated to produce. And I think that's part of what Articulate does. So on one side, we have this awesome fundraiser for an amazing nonprofit, but on the other side, we are supporting the city's emerging artists in a way that's not necessarily, um, it's not out there at a large degree to this point. Um, and we want to make sure that we continue to provide that space for the artists. Yeah, and if folks want to know more about it, it's at www.articulateatl.com, and the um, umbrella organization for the nonprofit is urbanartexpression.com. And not to 
gloss over it too briefly, but you mentioned that the artists keep all of their money, mm-hmm. which is very important, but also that you're selling work. I've been to so many shows um, where if you take the artist's friends out of the audience, there aren't that many people there. And the artist isn't necessarily selling work. Not that they aren't trying, but it's not happening. So I think that you all should be commended for creating a platform where artists are selling work, but also you're finding a way to to do both. You're having support for these working artists who are involved in this moment, but then you're also using those funds to then support these pre-emerging artists, these, <laughs> you know, these students uh, to get to that point. And I think that it's a win-win for everybody. Like, like the artists who are there win, the students win, the folks who come and have a good time, they win. So uh, I'm going to coin a phrase. Uh, no, no, I'm not coining a phrase. I'm borrowing a phrase from um, a good friend of mine, Lenny Gray Morris. Uh, Winfinity is what she called it. <laughs> Um, um, when when you have all these different wins happening at the same time. So Winfinity is happening um, in regards to Articulate ATL and UAE. So I just want to make sure that was properly, you know, amplified. Thank you. As we as we you know maybe kind of draw to a close here, I do want to get you all to maybe give a couple more moments to this notion of of documenting narratives and and sort of placing art in a place or or maybe connecting art to a place you know that's that's changing. So Atlanta is changing. Lots of places are are changing, and and these artists, um, mostly artists of color. Uh, are, are documenting these and really these really important narratives in this place. Um, I would love for you to maybe just talk about how important that is, um, not just for you, but for also the place, the place itself, that these artists are doing this work in this place. Either one. <laughs> yeah, um, I think it speaks to one the. There's a panel this year, and it's the first time. It's our five-year anniversary. We were excited about it. We wanted to bring an added layer of conversation to this. Um, The panel, we've hoped to include a body of art enthusiasts, professionals, curators of events who um, are able to add to this dialogue and conversation so that people understand how important it truly is to have these documenters, right? Like how often do you get something for free? If you consume the AJC or you watch um, the local news, you're getting that um, along with a certain amount of advertising and you know commercial breaks and whatever that looks like. Um, with your artistry, if you simply go to IG, you're able to consume um, kind of what's going on and there's so much during these times and things are evolving and changing ever so quickly that it is um it feels a bit more necessary for it to be captured in a way that is sustaining um and so i think our artists are doing a great job of being those 
documenters and there's not necessarily a direct component of pay to them. So when we go to IG, the artists aren't being paid because we follow them on IG. Um, one of the saddest things I can see is that someone has 100,000 followers and they're not able to monetize it in a way that directly impacts their household and their generational wealth. And so when we have folks who are doing such an excellent job of being these visual historians for everything that's going on right now, which is, it's so important, um, I only hope that we can repay them in a very small way. And if in that very small way is purchasing a print, is sharing their show with others, is purchasing a piece of artwork, is having a piece of their artwork in your home that you're able to speak to and provide a story so that others may be encouraged to buy another piece of artwork, or you're sharing it with a younger generation who may be encouraged to continue producing their artwork because they know that it's important and it's important to us and it's important to those that come after us and it's important to those who came before us. Um, my grandmother, um, who was one of the very most important people in my life and one of my most favorite people um, I've ever had the pleasure of <laughs> um, having a connection with, she was never able to meet George, but I knew that she would have loved him. Like, I, I knew that. And I remember um, it was the same year that she had passed um, on her birthday that year. I cried and I cried and my sister said, what's wrong? And I said, she'll never have the opportunity to meet George. Um, but somewhere in that, I know that what he has produced since then, she would have been so proud of. And it would have been a part of a story that she was able to tell over and over again. And whether he paints the Edmund Pettus Bridge or he paints the current corner of Myrtle and Woodburn where we spent so many of those summers, um, there's something that's special about that. And we need artists to do it. There's no one else who can do it for us. Um, so I hope and pray that we continue to support and celebrate those who are, who are being um, these historians that are working pro bono. And the only way that we can do that is through making sure that we aid in whatever way we can in helping them to monetize their creations and their work. Absolutely. George Isohe, thank you. Thank you both for inviting me into uh, Galbraith HQ once again. <laughs> Um, and, and really, I mean, just to be honest, I mean, just really getting a, a, a better perspective of sort of how you all move in the world. Because I think we, you know, we see each other and we talk, but really sometimes um, really maybe pressing the pause button and just like stopping to like really connect. And I think that's very important. I'm glad that you all were able to articulate, pun intended, <laughs> um, uh, just where you all stand in the world. I think it's really important. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it.